coup that overthrew Ceausescu, Silvio Brucan, told a New York Times reporter in the early 80s that the first consequence of the collapse of the dictatorship would be the emptying of the country. Everybody was going to leave. At the time, this was a joke. In 1994, there is nothing funny about it. Anybody able to get the ticket money and the visa is leaving. This isn't just a brain drain. It's a pouring of the whole body out of itself, a kind of epic migration that hasn't reached 6th century nomadic dimensions, only because the West has panicked, and because, in smaller measure, nationalists are providing a number of sentimental reasons for staying glued to once defoliated, toxically corroded native soil. The history of the last 40 years in Eastern Europe from Marxism to Groucho Marxism, can be told in jokes. It is an extremely primitive history, almost a no-history, resembling a simple organism with about three bones. It is quite amazing, given such history's lack of complexity, that armies of Western experts spent decades sifting with lice combs through Politburo speeches and opiated economic reports they could have saved a heap of time to know that Khrushchev left three unopened envelopes for his successors. Inside the first was written, Relax censorship. Declare amnesty. When this stops working, open the second envelope. In the second envelope it said, Borrow from the capitalists. Close your eyes to the black market. When this stops working, open the third envelope. Inside the third envelope was this. Write three messages for your successor. Seal the envelopes. At the height of the Stalinist terror, at a political joke contest, there were three prizes. First prize, a hundred rubles. Second prize, fifty rubles. Third prize, ten years at hard labor. This political joke contest was the same everywhere in the ex-Soviet dystopia with few local specifics. In that sense, the equalitarian ideal was first realized not on the economic or social level, but in the amusement zone. The universality of the political joke achieved what the serious ideologues could only dream of, the universal recognition of a common something. That something turned out to be misery. During Stalinism, a joke could have swift consequences, the release of the punchline was followed by the incarceration of the punster. Every joke during those days had in effect only one punchline, the gulag. I have no first-hand knowledge of anyone incarcerated for a joke because I was only old enough to go to prison during the time punsters were amnestied. But the experience made instant philosophers out of my parents. The universal content of the Soviet political joke did not diminish after the end of Stalinism, but the distribution improved as the punishments lessened. By the mid-60s, the secret police became a center for the dissemination of jokes. They avidly collected and spread them. It became evident, after Khrushchev de-Stalinized the political waters, that jokes had no authors. You couldn't imprison someone for having an antenna. A single source for such jokes could not be found. The political jokes were the creation of the collective mind, spontaneous as wind-borne spores, 
everywhere and nowhere at once. On the surface of the still waters of state socialism, the jokes bred like mosquitoes, taking off in swarms to keep the overheated bureaucrats awake at siesta time. By the mid-1960s, life itself became a joke in Eastern Europe, or at least there was no other modality to express it. The joke became the quintessential form of truth-telling, and it had to be capitalized, as Milan Kundera finally did in the novel The Joke. By 1968, the state itself was the chief producer of a generalized joke that held the place previously reserved for the sentimental platitudes of ideology. Stalinism had attempted and failed to oppose heroic, romantic, socialist, realist sentiments to jokes. Milan Kundera's novel The Joke follows the joke in one of its most familiar guises, simulation of the real. Everything in his mid-sixties Prague is a simulation. Folkloric ensembles imitate folklore. Communist Party members imitate Western capitalist fashions. Young Czech kids imitate what they imagine to be young American kids. Imitation extends to emotional life, where everyone is caught in a world of a simulation of feelings. The lies have become so generalized, it is impossible to remember the truth. The truth, of course, has been relativized by earlier imitations and is now without expression. In Romania, the joke under Ceausescu didn't become total because his brand of national socialism, while kitsch in the extreme, actually seduced both some people who knew better and the idiot masses, which, not necessarily idiotic in small numbers, become rhinocerized when they achieve the critical weight of mobs. In small numbers, Romanians have a wicked, self-deprecating humor that is full of common sense, even in ethnic jokes. When Itzak and Shmuel decide to escape from Romania by covering themselves with a cow skin and pretending to be a cow peacefully grazing at the border, it is not the border guards that get them. Itzak, spying from underneath the tail, screams in terror. The border guards, shouts Shmuel. No, stupid, the bull. So, Romanians do not question anybody's desire to leave, nor do they have much respect for the police. But the bull, that's another story. Toro, the bull, Mitra, is the spirit of the land incarnate. You can defy temporal authority, but watch out for this bull. The Ceausescu brand of nationalism did what it could to incite this unquestionable and aroused national ball to attack the minorities living in the country. Jews, gypsies, Hungarians, Germans, all were under the shadow of this horny ball. When at last, after Ceausescu's downfall, this ball escaped its joke, there was nothing funny about it. In 1989, after the breakup of the totalitarian regimes in Eastern and Central Europe and the former USSR, there was a short-lived hope that democracy and human rights would prevail in that part of the world. At the time, in the euphoria of CNN imagery, we glimpsed a new world order. Instead, what we now have is a well-established new world disorder. Nationalism, not capitalism, appears to be the last stage of communism. In 1989, when capitalism did not instantaneously give everyone new TVs and large hams, when the cargo cults of the West failed to materialize, the people turned to what they knew best, 
the soul-stirring romances of nation that stilled the cramps of hunger. Today, millions of song-intoxicated ex-drudges are ready to die for the stink of the national sausage. That is, they just want to die. Viva la muerte! Is it true, a reporter asked Ceausescu in the spring of 1989, that your people are freezing from lack of heat? Yes, Ceausescu replied, but nobody died from that. Is it true, insisted the reporter, that there is no food and everyone is starving? It is true, Ceausescu said, but nobody ever died from that. The astonished interviewer threw up his hands. Have you tried cyanide? he asked. Next to Ceausescu himself, his wife Elena was the most hated person in the country. It appears that at long last, a citizen obtained a gun and tried to kill the dictator at a mass rally. But he missed. How could you possibly miss? asked the colonel in charge of torturing him. It was the crowd, the man said. They kept shoving me this and that way. Should him, should her... These were possibly the last jokes told about the Ceausescus. It was as if even the jokes had run out of anything but a crude fantasy of revenge. The citizen assassin who in November had been only a character in a joke became only too real in December when he and his friends pumped a great number of bullets into the tyrant's bodies. Today, the Ceausescus gravesite is a place of pilgrimage. People leave flowers on it every day and claim, without a trace of irony, that things are much better when the tyrants were in charge. These people undoubtedly told Ceausescu jokes before their deaths. What they are lamenting is not really the Ceausescus, but the disappearance of the jokes that made their own lives bearable.